Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Seeds of Triumph podcast. We are all about helping service members navigate through the difficult and challenging experiences that come with serving in the military. Here on Seeds of Triumph, we will discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly, as well as provide several resources, techniques, and coping mechanisms that can be used every day to instill overall toughness, wellness, and resiliency into our military force. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you enjoy what we have to provide. Hey everyone, so today's episode, we talk about the military's inspector general system. We interview Ryan Swayze, who is the founder of the Walk the Talk Foundation. The Walk the Talk Foundation's purpose is to help service members and to change the policy within the Department of the Defense and provide advisement and support to those enveloped into the IG system. The Walk the Talk Foundation helps their clients manage expectations when it comes to navigating through the IG system, as well as write statements, provide counseling as needed by licensed psychologists. They provide legal resources and references and overall just help service members navigate through the IG system. We talk about in this episode really what the intent and the purpose behind the Inspector General Investigative System is. If you're anything like me, um, the IG system is kind of something that you just know about, but you've never really had to use it or you've always known that, you know, it can be used um, as kind of a last resort um, for some sort of wrongdoing or injustice. Well, Mr. Ryan Swayze, as we'll get into in the episode, has firsthand experience with the inspector general system and with his experience he has personally been a victim of some of the shortcomings of the system itself and has made it a point and really dedicated his life after the military to fixing it and when i say fixing it i I mean at a congressional level and that takes a lot of work to get to But it's something that he's done and it's truly an example and a testament to his character and how he used his adversity to grow and triumph. So before listening, I want you all to just think about it in a way that, you know, this individual worked in a system and he saw flaws in it and he was personally a victim to the flaws in the system and after giving 20 plus years of service to the military and still having experienced that senior in his career it's it's a lot and it can be damaging and it can cause you to lose hope but ryan didn't ryan saw it as a way to give back, to try and fix it. And that's exactly what he is doing. So I hope that his story motivates you and inspires you. And that that this episode 
teaches you something about the inspector general system and how it can be used and how it can be approved upon. I would also like to just point out and just make the statement to anybody out there listening that is in the military, that knowledge is power. Knowing policies, knowing where to go, knowing who to talk to for yourself is so powerful. If you have been a victim of a wrongdoing or you feel like something isn't right, please do your research and figure out who to talk to. Find a black and white and let that be your proof. Let that be your backup that something wrong did happen. And if that is you and something wrong happened to you or something was mishandled or your leaders did something that was wrong, back yourself up with that black and white, with those documents, with that policy and prove that what happened was wrong. And I also say this, in the Navy, it's called a memorandum for the record. A memorandum for the record can be used to document literally anything. So if you're in a situation right now or you find yourself in a situation in the future where you feel like somebody is breaking the rules, mistreating you, committing a crime or any wrongdoing, please document it. Document it in the form of a memorandum for the record. Sign it and keep it tucked away because you never know if or when you might need it. It's, it's the best way to protect yourself and to document things and to give yourself the best chance for justice or accountability. So thank you all again for supporting and listening and tuning into this podcast. The goal here really is to help you all cope with the stresses that come with being in the military. The military is not a perfect system. There's a lot of people involved. And when you involve people and the human factor with policies and the black and white, things are sometimes left open to interpretation or some people don't always have the best intentions and motive. So not just in the military, but in any organization, things can be flawed or processes can be wrong or the people implementing those processes can purposefully be not doing the right thing. And I just want to point out that that's a failure on them personally and their character. And I think that the military takes a hit and these different organizations within the military takes a hit when those people do that. And so I just encourage you to look at things from that standpoint, you know, that these individual people committing these wrongdoings are the reasons for the, the pure injustices that, that it may be perceived as. And while our systems and our processes are not perfect, the only way to get them perfect is unfortunately to get it wrong. And like you will hear in this episode with myself and Mr. Sweezy, is that there is hope for change. And the only way to change things is to be brave and courageous and strong and stand up for what you believe and stand up for what is right. 
Welcome to another episode of the Seeds of Triumph podcast. Today we are talking to retired Air Force fighter pilot and Walk the Talk Foundation founder, Ryan Swayze. During his time in the Air Force, Ryan also served as a Department of Defense Inspector General. And now Ryan has been featured in the Wall Street Journal for his work and advocacy for our military and Department of Defense. Hi, Ryan. Thank you for joining me today. Um, If you would just tell our audience a little bit more about yourself, um, your time in the military, and really just your purpose and what you're doing now. Yeah, thanks for having me, Desiree. It's uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, Happy to talk to you and uh, share some thoughts on a lot of things we're going to cover, I think, uh, in this podcast. So like you said, Ryan Swayze, uh, retired uh, Lieutenant Colonel of the Air Force, uh, retired about a year ago, uh, spent 22 years active duty. Uh, mostly as an F-16 pilot, uh, also did some uh, military diplomatic uh, attache stuff in my penultimate assignment, and then finally on the staff. Uh, like you kind of uh, alluded to, I was an inspector general in my uh, second-to-last operations tour from 2013 to 2016. So I, I was... Uh, indoctrinated into that system, into the inspector general system, trained, and then a full up round for about three years. And uh, it was there where I kind of started to see um, some of the issues, uh, so to speak, that the inspector general system needed uh, remedy, uh, essentially. But of course, when you're in amongst it, and uh, you've been given the marching order, and you don't have a lot of time to sit and reflect and, and ponder uh, some of life's problems. You just kind of uh, full steam ahead, trying to do the best job you can do. Uh, those those moments kind of go by the wayside, but I kind of st- saved them for later uh, introspection, if you will. Uh, and we'll come back to why that's important in a second. Uh, but after that tour, I went uh, to become a military attache. And that's under the Defense Intelligence Agency. You're owned by DIA as an attache. And there I saw a lot of uh, suspect activities uh, and was ultimately a victim of two institutionally backed reprisals uh, after having reported wrongdoings, specifically dereliction of duty of my two colleagues. And it was there where I really saw from a victim's perspective what it means to be cast into the treacherous waters of the inspector general complaint system. And so I had had kind of a a flavor, a little taste of it uh, as an IG, uh, but I didn't see the flip side of the process. I didn't see the victims and what they go through and how they're not represented and they have no counsel and, and no advisements. And they're made to basically sit and, while these cases languish for years, I didn't see that much as, a, as an IG myself, but I sure saw it as a victim. And so as I was finishing my Air Force career, uh, the two open reprisal investigations were kind of dying on the vine. And I started reaching out to former colleagues and their colleagues and their colleagues and just said, hey, uh, what are you seeing out there? Because this is what I'm going through. And sure enough, uh, a friend of mine, his metaphor, which I think is very apropos, is, you know, it's like getting punched in the dark and then you flip a light switch and you look around and you realize a lot of people are getting punched. 
And that's kind of how I felt as a, as a victim of reprisal, uh, trying to plow through this bureaucratic system. And I was getting no success because I had no leverage. And then when I started talking to all these people and they started uh, providing their feedback from what they were seeing, it was all of a very similar flavor. They were wronged or they witnessed a wrongdoing. Uh, they reported it just like they're instructed to do, just like their duty is. And then they were punished uh, or ignored or both. And they were sitting there for months, years, as their cases sat open, uh, at least stalled at a minimum. And I collated all this from what I was seeing from both uh, DIA as well as from the IG system. And I produced a report to Congress that eventually got uh, some publicity, like you said, through the Wall Street Journal. But uh, I also established a foundation at that point because I saw both as an inspector general as well as a victim that you're just on your own as a victim. You're the victim of the wrongdoing. And then you're a victim again because you have to fight this huge bureaucratic machine that's not out to protect you. It's out to protect the institution, essentially. And so you as a complainant and victim, you're doing all your paperwork, you're doing all your representation, you're not getting advised by anybody, you're trying to figure out the system as you go. And so you're very much fighting an uphill battle in several respects, not to mention the emotional and psychological toll that that takes, aside from all the time and effort you have to invest just to seek justice. Right? This is all you're, you're trying to do. And I thought there were a lot of significant gaps in that system. Uh, first and foremost, that you have no one in your corner, essentially, from the government who's, who's on your side. It's not like a UCMJ or NJP where you at least have counsel you're afforded. You've got no, nobody in these administrative type of actions. So I thought that was a huge gap. Uh, Brian, before you before you continue and yeah. go into the gaps, can you just explain? Because I'm curious too. Like, what is the intended role of the inspector general, and what types of complaints are usually made are typically made to that um, uh, agency or department? So, the inspector general, in theory, is it's administrative only. So they don't delve into a lot of issues to include any kind of crimes. Uh, any kind of equal opportunity issues, um, anything that is uh, deemed to be fit for command investigation, uh, their role uh, by Title 10, they're to investigate is what their purview is extremely narrow. It's reprisal, restriction, fraud, waste, and abuse. Uh, they take complaints in of other flavors, and then they vet where those are referred to if they are not to investigate them. Uh, but that's the overarching bubble of the IG system. But what the IG does and investigates itself is just limited to those three things. Yeah, so their, um, so their scope is what they are responsible for uh, specifically is fairly narrow. Um, but they're also, in essence, a gatekeeper of, of a myriad of complaints that service members can file. Uh, a lot of those are for command. Let's say there's a, uh, for, for whatever purpose, there's an inner office quarrel, you know, or a, an unfair uh, performance assessment or what have you. That's not restriction, reprisal, fraud, waste, and, and abuse. 
So the IG may intake those type of complaints, uh, but they'd appropriately channel it to the appropriate command for, for adjudication. So they kind of filter a lot of stuff, uh, send it to the appropriate parties because it normally is IG is just a clearinghouse for a lot of things. And then the three issues that they do investigate, uh, which is uh, bound by uh, Title 10, which is the law for active duty service members, is reprisal. So that means you are punished for making a protected communication. Uh, that's uh, the two minutes beyond that. Uh, restriction, which means you are being barred from making a protected communication. And then there's fraud, waste, and abuse. And that's uh, fairly self-explanatory. So what happens if um, someone goes to the IG because they think, and this is just in my experience, and, and maybe this is wrong, but like, let's say that I was a subject of an investigation or a subject of a wrongdoing by members of my command. Yeah. Um, I just want to say that's not the case. <laughs> this is just a hypothetical at this point. Really, hypothetical. But yeah. if it, yeah, hypothetical. If I if if high people at my command were were did something to me that was wrong, and the people that I would reported it to were involved, where would I go? Would I take it to the IG? You would. Yeah. And then if I took it to the IG, then would they just deflect it back to my command? Yeah. So that's a that's a great example because in essence, you're going to go to the IG when you feel there's been a rules or regulatory violation, right? So. In your case, you were um, the subject of, of something, whatever that hypothetical would be. And you can cite a rule, regulation, law, or what have you that was violated. Then the person you send that to is the inspector general. Right? So they exist to provide you, in theory, kind of an outside avenue to where uh, you don't have to work it through the chain or it's inappropriate to work it through the chain of command, whichever the case may be. So then at that point, the inspector general would do the investigation? Unlikely, um, because again, it's, uh, if, it isn't one, if it isn't one of those three, the inspector general office itself uh, may not be the one overseeing the investigation. They may task that out. It's still administrative in nature. Uh, if it goes to, like, let's say, for instance, uh, your supervisor um, gives you an unfair uh, performance assessment and you want to contest that, and you can't because the chain, you argue, is the one that did that to you. The inspector general, upon taking that complaint, would look for the command uh, or the element of the chain of command that's above that, uh, in which they would think they could execute some kind of administrative investigation with objectivity, and that would ref be referred to them. Okay. All right. I see. So I think we're talking about uh, the gaps. Um, so how kind how my career kind of uh, pivoted to uh, the foundation, and and so one of those things. It's it's a great point you bring up just by that question because. A lot of people are like, where do I go and what do I do and who do I write to and, and all that. And it's uh, sometimes it's pretty ambiguous and sometimes there's a, a concern of retribution uh, with that as well. You know, you don't have a, a clearinghouse, so to speak, in the military to go to and go, hey, this is what I'm working. 
you don't want to press with an IG complaint yet because you don't know or an EO or, or what have you. Uh, so one of the gaps I try and fill is just giving that advice to people like, okay, uh, I as a former IG would do this, this, and this, or not do this, or this is appropriate, or this is not. And just kind of first give them that initial vector. You know, that's for me, that's fairly easy, but for I think the younger clientele in the military, there's really not a lot of education about that. Um, perhaps intentionally. There's perhaps not. Go ahead. Yeah, there's not. And um, I will, you know, bring up a, a good point or maybe a good thing is, um, you know, a lot of my leaders um, actually recommend, you know, hey, file an IG if something isn't right and, and you want to seek you know, help at a higher level, file an IG complaint. And I 100% support that because it's like you guys are giving us another avenue. But I will also go on to say, I think maybe a lot of people are hesitant to do that because they just don't know where to start. And as they start looking on how to, it kind of gets convoluted and Google searches and documents and maybe just a lot of people don't really know how to do that. Yep. Yeah, uh, I'm glad you said that because that's always been my supposition and all my clients say that too. And and so that's one of the gaps I help fill in, like just walk people through it. I don't speak every service speak, but the process is uh, guided by Title 10 law and the Department of Defense. So it should all be standardized throughout and typically have little issues with that. Uh, and then the, the next gap is going kind of along the same lines of well, where do I start and what do I do is guiding them along the path of, okay, you have filed a complaint, now what? Uh, what to expect, what not to expect, how to shoot yourself in the foot, or I guess more specifically, how not to shoot yourself in the foot, uh, how to help your case, uh, what hurts it, those kind of things. Because on the other end is an inspector general, our peers, and they're going through a lot of complaints, probably they're weeding through a lot of things. And if you dump, for instance, a common error, uh, if you will, is to send them a 45-page novelette on, on the wrongdoing and what happened. And if you can imagine an IG's got to sift through 20 of those, like, man, I, I don't even know where to begin. So, you know, those kind of pointers uh, that I saw as lessons identified, lessons learned, on the receiving end, going, oh, I, I, you got to help me out here, that kind of thing, kind of guide the complainant through that as well. So that's uh, the second gap. And then the third gap, the final one that I saw, is more of a policy issue than an um, uh, individual-centric issue. And that, that comes from the Department of Defense. And mainly that the, the problems, the shortcomings I see with the system are, are fewfold. Number one, there's no timeline for IG investigations. And so they can languish open for years, and they do. And I commonly say justice delayed is justice denied. Nobody gets any kind of restitution if five years later they go, okay, you were wrong. Sorry about that. That's that's absurd. When you when so you parallel that to yeah. the civilian justice system, are there timelines in that sector? That's a great point about uh, the parallels and not of the, the American justice system. Uh, I was on the phone with a client actually yesterday uh, who was a subject of uh, IG investigation. So 
was accused of doing something and he was exonerated. Uh, but he called me up and he's like, you know, Ryan, the IG investigation process is one of the most un-American things in America. And it was, it was actually a really good point because when he compared and contrasted the IG investigation process to a criminal trial, you're afforded so many more rights under UCMJ, NJP, or, or, or a criminal trial, like the right to discovery, the right to an expeditious uh, hearing, uh, a, a jury of peers, all these things that you're afforded in the courts, uh, you're not afforded in the IG system. So uh, you may never know what the result of your uh, complaint was other than uh, substantiated or not. And that could come five years later and you will never see an unredacted version of the report. And if you're the subject, you'll never know who the accuser was. And it's not adjudicated by peers. It's adjudicated by one person who's below a commander who can change that result. Right? So there's a lot of things that are, um, Oh, how do I put this diplomatically? Could could use adjustment in a constitutional it, sense in the process. And it sounds like that could almost affect somebody like psychologically, like their emotions. And, you know, uh, I'm no psychologist and I don't have a degree in mental health, but just from, you know, my personal experiences and talking to others that have gone through some pretty treacherous things, um, not knowing the outcome it, it definitely can wear on, on your brain and, and have effects in your mental health. Um, it's all about closure, so, right? So yeah, that's one the thing word. I'd say the main thing, and again, I'm not a psychologist. Our foundation is fortunate enough to have a psychologist on our staff. Um, and I think she would agree with me on this stipulation is that one of the most important things you, you need for recovery is closure. You can't get that if, if that thing, either as the complainant or the subject, if that thing is open for years, um, and meanwhile, not not only is it not open and you're not getting closure, is that a lot of the times the investigation kind of resets because it's handed over or they need to know something else, and so now you're reliving that as you're interviewed each time, which is uh, from a mental health standpoint even worse. So you're absolutely right. Yeah, when you have to re re surface those thoughts, feelings, and emotions. And while you said that, I also thought of something else. It's like, you were doing this while you were active duty. And we all know that active duty, we don't stay in one place for a while. So if a case is taken, you know, longer than two, three, four years, then somebody else might have to pick up that case. And now, you know, there's a new perspective and a new outlook on something that could be different than, than the prior caseworker. Does, does that come up as a, as a conflict? Absolutely. And uh, so there's the turnover. And that actually happened in my case. And it happens in a lot of of my clients' cases is that it's handed over to a new investigator. And of course, there's going to be granularity loss in that data loss and like, okay, let's revisit. What do we do? Because they weren't doing the interviews. They weren't doing the report writing. And then the second issue along those same lines is like, okay, let's say, let's take your hypothetical scenario where your supervisor wronged you somehow with a fitness report or, or what have you. If that's closed out four years from now, number one, everybody's left, right? So you've left, your supervisor's left. Uh, so any kind of accountability, the chance for that is gone, right? Because they're going to get the report and like, who's this guy? Who's she? No idea. 
And second of all, you can't undo time. So let's say that poor performance report, what happens if it sets you on this divergent career path? It's like you were a hard charger, you were doing well. And now it's like, ooh, so you make a right turn and you detour. Well, you can't go back, right? You can't, four years later, like, you know what? You should have been rated highly. But in that time, you've had four performance reports and you've been sidelined because you weren't great on paper, et cetera. And a substantiation years later salvages nothing at that point, does nothing for you. Except maybe provide that closure that you need on a psychological level. But now at this point, you're dealing with the third, fourth, fifth order effects of not having that closure. Yeah, well said. Yeah, both from professional standpoint, as well as from a personal slash uh, psychological standpoint. And and that's one of the things, unfortunately, I got to start off with a lot of my clients and tell them uh, or just set expectations like this is not a quick process. And so if you're looking to get uh, some comeuppance, for lack of a better term, it's not going to happen. A. And if you're looking for timely resolution, that's probably not going to happen either. All right. So. Um, a, a conscious decision as to whether you want to go down that path and what your resolution, your sought resolution is. Uh, many times have to have that candid conversation with the people just to set expectations so they're not uh, disappointed when it takes too long or they have a result that uh, they, they didn't, uh, they weren't happy with. So I want to ask the question because you, you mentioned your clients and your clients are obviously coming to you um, for support um, in the Walk the Talk Foundation. So you spoke about the IG system and some of the deficiencies and how you know the Department of Defense could do better for a variety of reasons. So what what service are you providing to your clients that come to you um, in the Walk the Talk Foundation? Yeah, so my foundation basically does two main things. The the latter is going to be the congressional engagement. So we seek to change policy in the Department of Defense. And we talked about the shortcomings of the system and what we're trying to attack. That's that's kind of the first side of the House. And the, the advisement uh, side with uh, the clientele is a few things. Uh, number one, we and we kind of discussed this already, we kind of intro them to the system. Hey, what do you do? What not to do? Then we're with them throughout the case, kind of advising. Uh, we're happy to uh, write as need be, because that's, a, that's an important uh, aspect of the investigation, as well as the complaint, is that if you have a complaint or you have documentation or what have you, that isn't written well, isn't framed well, it hurts your case. Uh, that's an unfortunate Kind of like part. a resume. It's, it, like it is a, when you write more, your yeah, resume, yeah, you yeah. have to have those yeah. key words in there to flag right. a system to be able to take your, your resume in. So yeah. And so it's a skill. We, you got to learn how to do that. Resume reviewers, uh, for lack of a better term there. Um, so we're doing a lot. And that, it's a, it's a paperwork heavy drill, this, this IG process. So we do a lot. That's the large burden uh, on our side is just the administrivia of it all. Now, fortunately, we have some partners and we have some volunteers that uh, provide some peripheral support as well beyond just running through the, the bureaucracy, uh, the bureaucratic gauntlet of the process is that 
Uh, we have a uh, psychologist on the staff. So just to provide that kind of support from a, a counseling uh, perspective. Uh, and then we have some other partner organizations such as Protect Our Defenders and No Fallen Heroes. Uh, should people need legal assistance? Uh, should people need psychiatric assistance? Uh, we guide them there as well. We don't provide that to support ourselves. It's not uh, in our scope, uh, in our mission, but we've partnered strategically with a few other organizations where uh, their clients come to us for IG specific stuff and we send them there for the other needs they may have. That's in a nutshell what the advisement process looks like. It's a lot of talking, a lot of writing, uh, a lot of listening, a lot of counseling uh, on an unprofessional level, and then a lot of uh, uh, referring. So do uh, do they have to pay anything to um, get help from your organization? I know a lot of, we don't, in the military, we don't get compensated uh, very well to hire these, you know, um, <laughs> private private uh, lawyers and representatives and advocates. So I know that too well. And I'll start off by saying, uh, uh, no, we, we don't charge anything. We are no fee institution. We're a non-for-profit. I operate uh, either through personal funds or that of uh, generous donations from supporters. And uh, I'll never charge anything uh, because they're just trying to do the right thing. Right. I mean, and, and it's something close to my heart because during my reprisal case, I sought uh, representation for a civil suit. And uh, every lawyer I went to said the same thing. They said, you know what, you're going to pay us a lot of money and uh, your likelihood of success is low. And a lot of my clients now who seek legal representation and, and proceed with that, unfortunately kind of end up in the same boat where they, they pay a lot and uh, their, their chance of success is, uh, is nil or they're not successful in the end. Uh, and that's wrong. I, I, I just, so I give this parallel, Desiree. I, I don't know if this is the same in the Navy, you tell me, but in the Air Force, we had a letter of counseling. Right? That was an administrative punishment, quote unquote. And it was a very light slap on the wrist. It's the lightest uh any kind of punishment you could you could get as an officer or anybody in the Air Force for that matter. So let's say I had a bad haircut. Right? My boss said, you know what? Your hair is touching your ears. You get a letter of counseling. I, ah, okay, you got me. Uh, I could rebut that letter. Right? I could go, hey, this is what happened. I went to the barber, blah, blah. I couldn't get a haircut. It's not my fault, uh, et cetera. To write that letter, I was afforded legal counsel from the Air Force. That, is, that was the mandate of the Area Defense Council. Right? They were there to provide me legal assistance to rebut that letter, that which had no bearing on my career because of my bad haircut. However, you're the victim of a career-ending reprisal, for instance, and you receive nothing, no representation, no counsel, no advisement. I think that's an absurd gap Right. And so it if is, you yeah. want to defend yourself either in, or sue in a civil capacity as a victim of whatever the case may be, you have to go out of pocket for that. And I think that's atrocious. So that's something this is why the fee thing is, is very near and dear to me and why I don't charge 
because I don't think you should have to. One of my pitches to Congress is going to be that victims should be afforded counsel at no charge by the military because they were wronged by the military. We'll get to that. But in the meantime, I am here and uh, it is uh, my time and my dime plus some donations that, uh, that feed this machine. And that also shows, you know, your true passion, purpose, and genuineness behind, you know, the mission that you have and, and what you're in the service that you provide. So. Right. I'm not, awesome. uh, I appreciate that. It is a passion of mine and I'm also not beholden to any kind of uh, monetary stakeholders. Right. So some of the advocacy groups you're going to see out there, and unfortunately, they're funded by uh, organizations or peoples that have uh, some kind of agenda, whether that be uh, political or otherwise, and may not be in line with the true vision and mission of what that group should be. For me, it's just Ryan Swayze, alone and unafraid, uh, and not tethered by funding. So I guess... You help people that have to navigate the IG system. And so one of the questions that I think I had asked somebody else, they were a victim of a sexual assault. And so obviously that's a crime, whether in the military or outside of the military. So one of the questions I had asked, and this was to a a victim advocate, I said, why didn't you just call the police? You know, why go through the military? Um, We, as military people, we still are able to do that. Um, And so she brought up the fact that sometimes there could be some bias in the civilian sector as well. But I guess the question is kind of still open-ended and it's like, well, why not go through uh, the civilian police force to report a crime? Mm -hmm. So you want me to kind of talk about parallels to that and nothing. So in terms of administration and administrative uh, action, vice a crime is that kind of what you're what you're driving at? Well, I guess, or maybe I just I I would I'm a little confused as to what actually makes it up to the IG level. Okay, is yeah. it those sexual assaults? Is it those sexual harassments? Um, is that what's happening, or is it? I mean, I know you gave us those three categories at the beginning, um, like fraud, waste, and abuse and stuff like that. Um, but I guess I'm just trying to figure out if the if if the process of the IG would be utilized by those types of I don't want to call them victims, but there yeah, so who have experienced those the, things. It's an interesting question because there are some cases that I've had that have overlap. So like you said, uh, sexual assault, crime, investigated by the, the, the criminal arm of the military or not anymore, actually. Um, however, I have some clients who have some, I guess, bleed over, for lack of a better term, in that, okay, there was a crime but how the command handled certain things about it or how the sexual assault prevention response coordinator handled the intake or whatever, that is absolutely under the IG purview. And so we Got do it. have some of that where it's like, okay, the crime is going to be investigated via that channel, but the actions, reactions, responses that happen post-reporting or during the reporting, yes, that is an IG matter. 
So, that okay, that makes more sense. It does. And it's like, that's where the reprisal part comes in, right? Is because let's say something bad happened to you, then you reported it. And now you're seeing that it did not get handled as it should have. And you suspect that there, or you know that there was some mishandling of that information. That's when you would take it to the IG to ensure that maybe the perpetrator is held accountable or that the command you know, is actually, I don't want to say called out, but maybe they get get a new perspective on what was actually done to maybe overturn or get to hold that perpetrator accountable. Because really that's the goal here is, is to make sure that people are held accountable so that their actions aren't affecting the future of our military and, and infecting the future of our military. So it's a really good purpose here. And um, yeah. That's really, that's really well said is that uh, to your first point, yeah, whenever there's a rule broken, not a law, but a rule, it's the IG. So that's a huge gamut of things, right? They may not investigate everything. They investigate actually fairly little. But yes, if there is a rule violated, you go to them and go, this was violated. And purpose, ultimately, like you said, although you're looking for individually served justice, the real overarching altruistic aim is to prevent that from happening to the next Desiree, to the next Ryan Swayze, right? Because you're trying to break that cycle, if it is a cycle, and many times it is, you're trying to break that so you prevent future events and future occurrences from happening, absolutely. Yeah, and it it seems necessary to have this process because, Without that, without these checks and balances, people would just be able to run free and do what they wanted to do. And I don't think that the military is set up to run that way. But we are humans and, you know, nobody's watching our every move all the time. So, yeah, at some point, uh, police need to be policed, right? Exactly. Yeah. And that's and that's in theory what the inspector general does. It is. uh, theoretically an independent investigative arm to carry that out. And it's a valid point that you make. I don't even think you were trying to make that point, but you said the police need to be policed. Well, you bring me to kind of what is popular, unfortunately, but there's a lot of investigations that have happened recently into, you know, certain police forces and they also have their own um, IG system. I don't know if they call it IG, but a, uh, an investigative authority that goes in to make sure that these police officers with this authority are conducting internal affairs typically. the right yep. way. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, and uh, that's a good point. Internal affairs, It's I would like to see the military uh, investigative or the inspector general system kind of structured a little bit more like that because in most internal affairs, they are outside of the department they're responsible for keeping checked and balanced. Uh, Whereas an inspector general, let's say the inspector general for a base, that person is still subordinate, i.e. rated by the base commander. I think that introduces, yeah, I think that introduces way too many conflicts of interest. Uh, And I would would have never, I would have never guessed that. That is crazy. uh, Wow. I would say it is a serious flaw in the system uh, because not only for the fact that you could have undue command influence, 
uh, because he's your boss or she's your boss, right? So whatever they say goes. Um, but that kind of removes a lot of independence too, doesn't it? Uh, not only uh, questioning the objectivity, but just the independence. So to your point about the internal affairs, yeah, it's great because in the police world, uh, you don't have your chief of internal affairs subordinate to the chief of that department, which makes sense. So there's, you go in and you're checking them and he's not my boss. She's not my boss. I'm just going to tell it like it is. And that works because of that. But when you have the military system where the IG is subordinate to the commander of the command that IG is responsible for, it introduces a lot of uh, uh, human error into the system, let's say. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's just, unfortunately, that just can't be prevented. There's no way to 100% say that that's not going to happen. Right. Yeah. Which, yeah, nature, that's crazy. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. I wonder, I, I mean, I may be a stupid question to, to ask or to say, but like, I wonder if, if the powers that be know, like, does Congress know? Uh, maybe they're writing something to uh, fix it. I'm not sure, you know, because if, if not a lot of people see something as a problem or they never follow through with it, then they're not able to call attention to it. So if, if they don't know that it exists, how are they supposed to make the change? So. Yeah, well, I'll you know, tell them. I'll tell you, they know about it because I've let them know. Uh, a. <laughs> okay. Okay. And, and uh, so there's an entity in the Senate called the uh, Governmental Affairs Committee. It's the uh, Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. They oversee all inspectors general of, uh, throughout the government. And uh, I've engaged with them frequently on many issues IG related to include that. Uh, and so they are actually in the midst of doing a quasi study uh, for lack of a better term in being able to assure independence for inspectors general. And of course, one of the things they're looking at is where an IG is positioned hierarchically uh, in, in the military and then throughout all subordinate levels of the military and how that affects their ability to be independent. And uh, I, I would assume and hope that the Senate's committee arrives at the same conclusion you and I have, have just arrived at. So there's hope and there's forward progression, it sounds like, which is a oh, good thing. Oh, there's absolutely hope, yeah. I, I, uh, the, the foregone conclusion here uh, is that we're going to fix the system. If it takes years or decades, uh, I'm going to see it through. It's, it's just a matter of time. Good. I love that. Okay. Thanks, Ryan, for um, going over the IG process. I think that's something that is kind of puzzling for a lot of us people in the military. Um, and it's a treat that we're able to get you on here to, to talk about it as somebody who's done it and is actually advocating to, to better and fix the process. So yeah. um, that being said, you know, part of what I'm doing is to better and fix the process in the military of receiving mental health care. Um, because a lot of what we do comes at the cost of not only our physical health, but our mental health. And, you know, a lot of us don't even have to be presented with a traumatic, life-changing experience. It could just be stress, you know, 
um, stress from long working hours, being put in these crazy environments that you have to adapt to. Like I commend everybody who joins the military, goes to boot camp in the Navy, right? And then go straight to a ship. That is such a life adjustment. And you have to be so strong and brave to know what you're getting into doing that and adapt. So that being said, that could also cause, like I said, a lot of stress and that goes into anxiety and mental health. And then you have, you know, the human factors that you put into it, which God forbid, you know, somebody has to interact with a a bad chain of command, right? Or they're surrounded by leaders who may be out to get them, hopefully not, but bad people do exist out there. And so, you know, I want to better equip the future and the current people at our military to be able to to handle those things, to stand on their own two feet, um, have the information, because I always say knowledge is power, and the resources to utilize to be able to deal with, cope with, and ultimately, you know, stay and and push that message forward. And if staying in isn't for you, then to, to get out and maybe do what you're doing and continue to support, advocate, and serve. So, you know, as we know, mental health is is uh, a big issue in our military. It's also a big issue in, in the entire country, right, as we deal with the aftermath of COVID and a lot of people, you know, losing loved ones and just dealing with certain things that we've never experienced before. But focusing it back to the military, um, I just recorded an episode with another um, active duty military member, and we talked about moral injury. And it wasn't until I met him um, and started having these conversations that I really realized um, how many of us um, experience that and we don't even know about it. So I know that you have experience dealing with that from your own experiences. So I just want to, you know, open up to you and, and ask that you explain to our audience from your lens and perspective and experience, you know, Hey, what is moral injury and what are your experiences with it? Yeah. You, uh, you hit on a lot of topics, uh, that, uh, a lot really tie into uh, what I'm doing. So while yes, I'm focused on the inspector general process and, and whatnot, I can't ignore the psychological, the emotional, price uh, that people pay during that that long process. And so I've become more in tune. Uh, like I said, we have a psychologist on the staff now because they go hand in hand. It is a, like you said, a stressful time. It's usually a long and drawn out amount of time as well, which is kind of exacerbates the issues. And so you're absolutely right. It's uh, the IG process is a mental health concern, threat process, whatever you want to call it as well. Uh, so one of those things you, you mentioned that the, the term, which I actually hadn't heard of until I was a patient of mental health therapy as well was moral injury. And I'll tell you what I was feeling because that essentially defines it, but I just didn't know it. And it really came down to when I was the victim of reprisal, and I thought that the chain, the inspector general, uh, the commanders, any or all of them involved would either protect me 
or if not protected, they would serve eventual justice and accountability. And none of those happened. It really shook me. And for a long time, I was frustrated, angry, short-tempered. And so there was an article after my mental health therapy, and the quote that I had in it was, I started to recognize, I started to not recognize who I was becoming. And that was the long-term effects of what I didn't know was called, but I do know is called now, moral injury. And that's roughly defined as when your belief system is attacked. And as a result of that attack, it's shaken or shattered. My belief was in the purity of the system, injustice and righteousness, et cetera, and that didn't happen. And after having spent 22 years in the active duty, uh, being told I would comport myself like that, but then it wasn't reciprocated by my leadership, uh, that had a profound impact on me. Uh, and and you, were, you were at this point in your career, a lieutenant colonel? That's right. Yeah. So okay. when I was the, uh, the victim of reprisal, uh, I was about 19 years in. And so... I was, I don't want to say disillusioned, um, but when you're told for the better part of 20 years, certain things about uh, the sanctity of and the investigative process or the justice process or laws about being protected from reprisal, and then none of that comes to fruition. And just the opposite, in fact, you're not only not protected, you're punished. Uh, that that really had a much more profound impact on me than than anything I had seen before in my 20 years flying tactical aviation in combat, dealing with killing and death. This event had far more of a, a deeper uh, deeper impact on my psyche than any of those previous uh, events, and that really surprised yeah, me. Yeah, because. To go into combat, right, as a fighter pilot and put your life on the line so many times for for the the military and for the betterment of this country, I mean, you really have to believe in that and you have to trust um, in yourself and what you're doing. And so I could only imagine, you know, the disheartedness and how you felt once you actually had to deal with something like that at your rank and level too, because I want to point out um, to some of our listeners, like if, if they're junior in the military, right, it still happens to everybody, E1 to, to, to E20, or <laughs> I don't right. think E20 exists, but I say that to say like the highest ranking person still experiences, you know, wrongdoings of, of people, of others. No one is immune, right? And one of the reasons one of the many reasons that I decided to go public both at a, the Air Force uh, news level and then eventually the national level while on active duty, one of the messages I wanted to convey was, yeah, nobody is immune from this. So um, you know, I wanted to kind of break the stereotypical mold like a person who raises a complaint as a whiner, uh, just didn't get their way, uh, is weak. And I'm not speaking egotistically here, but if I, I said, if I go on in my uniform as a seasoned combat veteran fighter pilot, 
who's done a lot and seen a lot and said, this broke me. Uh, I was hoping to set the example for others like, okay, it's not a sign of weakness to raise your hand and go, I can't take this. And I hope that was met with some success. It's not. Honestly, it's the ultimate sign of bravery and courage to be able to do that and put your own fears aside to give back and to set that example and to fight for your true beliefs. And I hope that that contributed to the healing process from, you know, this feeling of moral injury that you felt. Yeah. It's why you do your podcast and why I do my foundation, right? It's, it's not only curative for us, but it's to pay it forward. So, yeah. So, uh, so the, so essentially the, the general definition of moral injury is just something that shatters your belief system. It's typically and traditionally been tied to combat uh, and for the, the, the routine, so to speak, cases, uh, a good person you know, a friend, a colleague dies and your belief system was in general, good people shouldn't die. They shouldn't be killed when they're 19. They should be able to live a full life and now they're dead and that shakes a person and that's a lot of what we see, I think, on the combat side. But this concept of moral injury uh, from PTSD that's not from the battlefield, I think we're just starting to dip our toe into the water of this concept in the military because for so long it's been in, the, in dealing with the unfortunate effects of combat, death and dying and, and loss uh, and traumatic events. Uh, but now we're starting to look at traumatic events in terms of, okay, you're harassed in the office for a year. Right? So there wasn't a one-time thing you can point to, and that was terrible and horrific, and now I'm reliving it. But instead, maybe more uh, subdued thing, but it's happened over time, and it's wore your mental health down. And that the effects are just as as impacting as the combat effects of moral injury. It's just that I don't think the department, the military is savvy enough yet to see that the two are, are very similar. And I'll tell you just anecdotally uh, from my, uh, my clients and my foundation is that a lot of them are suffering PTSD from the abuses that drove them to the IG complaint process. So whether it was harassment or reprisal or retribution or bullying, et cetera, they're having the serious, uh, they're seeing the serious fallout emotionally and psychologically, just as our combat veterans are, whether it be a depression, whether it be suicidal ideations, whether it be attempted suicide, I see that from my clients, and that is not battlefield related. That is this, what I think is traditionally kind of been seen as a softer, like, oh, whatever, you were harassed, you were bullied, suck it up, tough it out. But the effects are profound, and I can say that uh, unequivocally, they're, they're as, as, as demoralizing, as affecting as those that are seen in, the, in combat zones. 
But I don't think the military has quite made that that connection yet. And that's what I'm trying to expand awareness on is that these processes like the inspector general, like EO, uh, like administrative actions, it's tied to mental health uh, inextricably, right? Because you've been wronged and you want to see your right. That's your belief system, right? So if that doesn't happen, that's moral injury, just like on the battlefield, you don't think good people should die and your friend dies. Now your belief system is shattered. They're essentially variations on the same theme. And the effects from an emotional and mental health standpoint are the same. So kind of going back, circling to your initial point, is like, yeah, what I'm doing in the foundation, uh, it's IG-centric. But what is it really aimed at? It's improving the mental health and welfare of the force, and it all goes to readiness. Whether the trauma occurred 6,000 miles away or whether it occurred at home base or on the ship or what have you, it doesn't matter, right? If the person is suffering just the same, uh, then we got to treat it just the same. Indeed. And I want to make a comment and just tie it back to a real life example. I'll give a personal example for me, right? Like in my trauma, I was undersupported. I had nobody. I was left alone. And it was by the people that I didn't expect to do that to me. So I suffered a high level of distrust in my military leaders, which is so unfortunate. And it it messed me up. It gave me that that PTSD from trusting my leaders that they would be able to protect me and advocate for me. So I, I felt alone. There was this this wall up, this defense up that, you know, nope, I don't trust you. I'll never trust you. And that's not healthy because I find myself as a leader moving on from that, projecting that onto the people that I lead. And not only that, but the people who are in leadership positions above me that honestly didn't deserve that. Um, because I'll say, and I've been so fortunate to have came out of the place that I was in with the leaders that did not support me to a complete 180, right? Now I've come to a place where all of my leadership is phenomenal. They've poured all of their support and mentorship and go above and beyond. And they're the exact leaders that the future of the Navy and the military need. And so that helped me get through that trauma but it's still there. I still find myself this with this distrust, this like trauma where I'm like always questioning everybody, even though they've shown me that they they don't have to be distrusted. So I'm still working on that. But it's a great point that you said, you know, that this moral injury can happen. And a lot of us, we have to be self-aware of it. Because had I not been aware that I was projecting that trauma onto other people, I wouldn't have taken active steps to to fix it. So just even having this conversation and providing that example, I just wanted to say that to make others aware um, that it could be affecting you. No, it's a great point. And it's exactly what I went through is because it, it changes you, right? It fundamentally changes you and you might have been the most trusting person uh, on the planet you might have been the most compassionate or empathetic and suddenly you're not right and and 
and it's insidious too, right? So it's not like a one-time bam and then you wake up and you're a different person and you're like, what the hell just happened? It's little by little, yourself is chipped away. And then it's one morning you wake up and whatever happens, you're just like, I, who am I anymore? And, and that was my, my tipping point where I had to go, okay, I, I need help. All right, Ryan. Well, thanks for sharing, um, you know, your experience with moral injury. Uh, It's really unfortunate, you know, that we have to go through those things. But are you able to kind of share how you dealt with it, how you overcame, you know, that that feeling, that internal conflict? Yeah, the, the, the short answer is I sought professional help. And you know, I was kind of with the mindset at the time when I went into mental health, I was still on active duty. I was uh, still active uh, flyer. And, you know, there's, there's stigma in the community about getting mental health. And, and there's also kind of an ego thing about the person itself. Like I can overcome this. This is no big deal. I've seen worse. I've done worse. Um, so what, what's wrong with me? Uh, but I couldn't, I couldn't defeat it. And uh, it was starting to impact uh, the people around me. And that's when I knew uh, it was time to, to get professional help. And so I did. And looking back, I could not pinpoint at that time what was happening to me. Now, two years later, I can go, okay, well, moral injury. Now I know what it is. And now I know what it caused it and what the effects were the time I just was just an angry shell of myself uh, and not able to get out kept kind of stuck in this rut just kept ruminating over the events and not progressing so through a lot of therapy and with the help of a really good counselor uh, I was able to piece together what had happened why and, and really One thing that I learned about myself that I found really fascinating is that I had a flawed belief system. And I remember very well the session we were in because I was talking about how I was wronged and how there should be justice and just getting very fired up in that conversation. And she goes, so do you think uh, that right always wins? And I said, no. She goes, are you sure? Because it I would sounds have said, well, it should. Much. Yeah, I should, <laughs> at least for me. I was like, it should win. It should. And she goes, are you, now think about your answer again. I said, okay, I get your point, which is, yeah, a lot of times bad things happen to good people. And it just so happened that that bad thing was what happened to me and that good person, at least in my opinion, was me. Right? But that belief system that I had, which was pure, but it was also flawed, is what kind of led me down that path and ended up being a little bit of my undoing. And so in order to get through that, you got to learn to reshape what your beliefs are. If you liken it to the experiences on the battlefield, good people shouldn't die young. Well, they do. Right? And sometimes you got you to face that and you got to confront that and you got to reshape uh, in many ways 
a lot of uh, techniques and protocols to do that. But in the end, you got to reshape how you think. And for me, it was, okay, sometimes uh, you just get screwed, right? <laughs> and and I, I don't want to sound uh, tongue-in-cheek or, or crass about that because it's a serious issue. Um, but in the end, yeah, I, I have to learn that uh, life is unfair, to put it uh, succinctly. So through therapy, I was able to, to reframe the problem, but also the solution. And that's kind of what brings us back full circle of foundation is like, okay, uh, what happened to you is over. It was an injustice. Uh, it was bad luck, bad timing, uh, just a constellation of events that worked against you. What are you going to do about it now? Are you going to stew for the next five years, 10 years and ruminate and not get anywhere and just whittle yourself down? Or are you going to try and turn it into a positive? And that's exactly what the foundation is about, which is take that experience, pay it forward to help prevent other people from going through what you went through. And that's why we're here. 100% Ryan, you hit you. It's like you said all the buzzwords, right? Like we're reframing this traumatic adversity, right? To grow. So and triumph. And that's exactly what you did. That's what I did. And that's what everybody else on here is doing. And the listeners out there, they can do it too. And so I'm really glad that you brought that up and you shared that story with us. And like you said, I don't think you were being crass. I've heard that too. I've had to deal with it. I, my thing was like, why me? Why me? Why me? Why is this happening to me? You know, I'm such a good person and I would never do this to anybody else. Um, and once I stopped thinking that and, and got that constant loop out of my head and just say, you know what? It happened to me. It, it just is what it is. I'm going to move on. I'm not going to let that break me down and I'm going to grow. And I, I'm out of it a better person. I hate to say that, but it's the honest truth. I am so much better for everything that I've endured and it has built me into the person that I am today. Hallelujah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thanks again for coming on and sharing um, with us and, uh, you know, his, his foundation is walk the talk foundation. And I will put the link to his website and his contact info in our episode bio. So if you guys think that, you know, his um, foundation can benefit you, please reach out and just, just look him up and read about his story and his articles and all the good work that he's been doing. Cause it's truly great. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you all for tuning in to another episode of the Seeds of Triumph podcast. And again, a special thanks to Ryan Swayze for sharing his story and all the work that he is doing with the Walk the Talk Foundation. As always, if you are currently struggling with your mental health or you just want some access to mental health resources, please check out the link in the episode description as I have compiled a list of mental health resources available to the military, to veterans, as well as some nonprofit organizations that are there to support you in your mental health journey. I've also included a list of book recommendations that have personally helped me grow through my traumatic experiences. And finally, if you would like to contact the Seeds of Triumph podcast 
For any reason or to get in contact with one of our guests, please email seedsoftriumph.podcast at gmail.com. And a last thank you again to you all for your support and for listening to this podcast. The views expressed by the speaker and all guests are not those of the Department of Defense, United States Navy, or any other government agency. They are strictly those of the speakers who do not speak for any other organization or entity. The speakers are not mental health professionals and do not intend any of the content of this podcast as mental health advice. If you need professional mental health advice, please seek out your closest military or civilian mental health providers immediately.